and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez, and we're here with my old friend Carlos Goodman, who I've known pretty much since I moved to L.A., which we won't say when exactly that was. <laughs> but the last he, century. <laughs> yeah, he went to Brown with a bunch of uh, friends of mine that ended up being writers, and uh, he was already a lawyer, but he got into entertainment law, and one of the first uh, big jobs that he did, or one of the big movies that he did, was Reservoir Dogs, which was before anybody knew that Quentin Tarantino was going to be this huge star. So how did, how did um, Reservoir Dogs come to be? How was it packaged? Were you involved with that? Well, that was the first film I worked on uh, as a lawyer, so I didn't really know what I was doing at all, to be honest with you. But I was working in a firm with other people, and uh, Lawrence Bender, who you yeah. may know, uh, was a producer, young producer, kind of trying to make it in Los Angeles, and uh, he'd found this script, Reservoir Dogs, and uh, they were partnered at that time with a guy named Monty Hellman, who made films in the 70s. Yeah, Blacktop, Tulane Blacktop. Tulane Blacktop, great guy. He was represented by the law firm that I was at, and uh, they came to us needing a, a law firm to do production legal work at that time, which is kind of the catch-22 that a lot of young producers have, is that they need legal help at that early stage, but they don't, frankly, have money to pay for it. Right. So that becomes a little bit of a chicken and the egg. So, so is that, is that um, something that you would deal with because Monty had a 5% deal there? Or? Well, that was an, um, a different type of law firm. Um, and uh, Could you explain what a 5% deal is? Oh, so, so sometimes in Hollywood, if you are relatively established, either as a writer or an actor or a director, not so much a producer, I don't think. That's correct. Um, the uh, law firm will take you on as a client in the same way that you have an agent or a manager where they're taking a percentage of your gross. So, and with lawyers, what they will generally take is 5%. And in exchange for that, they will do um, all your contracts. However, what I've found, because I've been sort of a mid-level um, actor for my entire career is that they're happy to do the acting contracts, but when you decide you want to produce a movie or you've got some if-come deal, which means it's a sort of speculative sort of situation, then they really do not want to do that because it becomes um, a lot of labor. Well, it's, and very, time. Yeah. it's very time-intensive work, mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how all the law firms now uh, offer their production legal services. Um, I think in some situations perhaps there's a small advance that's paid to enable the law firm to do the casting director agreements and maybe the initial actor offer letters and maybe some law firms will, you know, smaller operators will take some risk and, you know, get paid if the movie gets made but not do it entirely on speculation and take some fees up front to kind of get into it. I think you have to find uh, and there's several out there, you know, guys who are working on their own, maybe not as part of big firms who are willing to do um, some speculative work. At the time on Reservoir Dogs, I, it's been so long that I don't really remember the exact arrangement, but I remember uh, it was a pretty modest fee for the time and it got included in the budget. So the filmmakers put a line item in their budget for production legal work and maybe they paid some form of an advance when we first started working with them. But, uh, the, but the essential thing to know is, if you're a young filmmaker, is you, you, know, you have your producer, hopefully, who's trying to arrange all these things for you, 
and uh, first things you need to hire a casting director and make offers maybe to to actors and that usually has to be done in some kind of legal type offer document so you're going to need the help from a lawyer right from the get-go putting aside even the question of uh, control or ownership of the screenplay mm -hmm. which is maybe the first step but uh, each picture is different but all these different transactions are essentially legal relationships between different people and um, and uh, the creator of the script uh, that's the first let's say that's the first step at some point uh, who then controls the script for purposes of producing the film and that set creates a series of legal relationships that then morph into bigger relationships in terms of creating a production company that then hires all the different people there are legal contracts that are involved in every element of this process and so uh, lawyers become very, very essential very early on. With Reservoir Dogs, what was like the first thing that you did? So you got this project, then what, how do you start? Uh, I, well, there are two different sets of things that are going on. Um, in, in that situation back then, there was uh, the relationship between the people who are making the film, let's call that the talent, the producer, the writer-director, um, Monty was kind of, uh, Monty Hellman was an executive producer, kind of the godfather of the project. That would be the talent core group. Then you had the, uh, the company that was essentially financing the film, which was uh, called, at the time, Live Entertainment, which then became uh, Artisan and then got bought into Lionsgate. But uh, that was a video distribution company that was willing to put up a, a guarantee to pay the budget, basically through a structure called a negative pickup that, as again, is a whole other set of financial and legal relationships with a bank and a completion bond company, probably too involved to get into right now. But there is essentially the financing side of the, of the transaction with the distributor, and then there was kind of the production side of the, of the situation with hiring the actors, hiring the crew, putting the uh, rights for the screenplay into a production company, creating the company to acquire the rights and then essentially borrow the money from a bank that was secured by a commitment from the distributor and also secured by a completion guarantor. So very, very complex legal set of relationships um, and the lawyer is really at the center of that working primarily for the producer and the writer-director in that situation. Now, negative pickups, from what I understand, um, are very hard to come by nowadays. What, what happened? That used to be all the rage. Well, negative pickup, it, it really, in many ways, stopped becoming a negative pickup because, um, essentially, the distributors were financing the films directly, cash flowing the pictures. Um, that was a more formalized structure that became outmoded. Um, what, did that, what does that mean, negative pickup? Ne a negative pickup would mean, in, a, in, in effect, it's, it's very complex, mm -hmm. but um, uh, a, a production company would produce the film and the negative, the film, would be picked up by the distributor, in effect, uh, in an arm's length transaction in which um, the creative people would create this production company, a single-purpose production shell, to produce the picture and then deliver the film to the distributor through a delivery process, uh, which would trigger the requirement that the distributor pay what's called a minimum guarantee, but essentially the budget in exchange for the film, and then you'd have a bank 
and a bond company that would be there to ensure that the film was delivered and that the distributor would not have to cash flow the picture until they knew the picture was completed and done right. So for companies that were fairly small back then, like um, video distribution companies, when video was a very high, hot market in the 80s, let's say, they would produce movies this way. They didn't want to cash flow and take the risk that these new filmmakers would fail and not deliver the film, so they put up a commitment to pay a certain amount on a, on a, on a, upon delivery. Um, studi studios now are, you know, studios cash flow films, and if something were to happen that would, um, you know, maybe someone got hurt or there was some uh, unforeseen contingency that occurred during production, the studio's at risk. Maybe they have some insurance, but they're at risk and they're cash flowing that film. These other companies that were smaller didn't have as much cash on hand, and they would create a banking trans transaction in a sense, in effect, that would protect them in terms of their cash flow and reduce their risk. Where you know losing a million dollars at a company like that would have been a very big hit for them, so that a financial negative for them that they couldn't afford to have happen. So there was this elaborate structure that was created back then. People also felt that that negative pickup structure shielded the talent and allowed them to have a lot more um, creative freedom because um, everything they did creatively was subject to the approval of the company paying for the film, but in a lot of ways there was a lot of freedom of control. So I think what you're coming back to your point, maybe the, the loss of the negative pickup structure is a genuine negative pickup structure. has is kind of reflective of a less control on the part of the talent community community on making these films. What you've seen that's replaced that structure, I think, in the last couple of years, which is a more kind of contemporary situation, is the creation of LLCs well, with, with really hedge fund money yeah. or private money. That's not money that's coming from a distribution entity. That's money that's being raised privately by people with equity, basically, and they're investing in films, either through doctors and dentist type movies where you raise a million dollars with small contributions from different people or you have a wealthy individual or two who are going to invest in a film and they create an LLC that would be the production shell of former times now is the uh, production shell for this picture with money being deposited in some kind of escrow account or put into the company and the company that makes the film and then tries to go to Sundance and sell the film or get distribution after the film's been completed. These films we're talking about, Negative Pickups, really became a cover for films that had distribution that went through this kind of fictional arm's length structure and ended up being handled by the distributor. A lot of these films today are being financed by people who are not distributors and they're trying to maybe hit it big and sell the film. Mm -hmm. To a distribution company later. So the pros, I mean, but the pros of the negative pickup deal were security, that you actually had distribution. Right. But the pros now are um, the deals that you can make because really back then your deal was done. Like you had already yes. said where, what territories were sold, That's where right. they were going. So you would make This a, was before they shot the picture? Yeah. You had How, a fixed sort of thing yeah. in place. With Reservoir Dogs, I'm just curious, how did that get to that level, like that film, get to that level before they made it that people would know that it was going to have distribution and was able to sell territories well, since it was an unknown director? Um, yeah. Maybe Monty's um, his abilities were able to get it to this level? Um, well, in some ways, the elements of that haven't changed. Um, 
but that film, you know, films were cheaper to make back then. I mean, that film was made for a million dollars, maybe a million two. Um, they had Harvey Keitel. Uh, Harvey Keitel was a name element for home video and for foreign sales. So what they would do, that was not a theatrical distribution commitment, that was a film that was a video distribution mm -hmm. company. Like I think Columbia TriStar Home Video made, this was before I was in the business, but they made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. These were companies that were home video distribution companies that had foreign sales arms. So they would maybe get one name element, just like you have now, project what they could sell the film for internationally, and then know that if the film didn't, you know, didn't work out that well, they would just release the film straight to home video. They were not under an obligation to release the film theatrically. Mm. So, But could the talent then release it theatrically if something good happened? I don't think that that was a staple of those deals. Right. I think that you know, the filmmakers were you know, wanting to make their films and they were banking on their own talent to be able to deliver something that would be worthy of a theatrical release. So Live was not a theatrical distributor back then and they later morphed into Artisan and became a distribution company, but they sold the theatrical distribution rights to Reservoir Dogs to Miramax. Oh. So, but now the model is very different. You know, I think most people are trying to find a lot of the private equity for these smaller pictures and then hope to get rich by going to Sundance and selling the picture for a lot more than what they, uh, what they, what they made it for. And that's a much more risky proposition, I would think, uh, because you don't know. You have nothing lined up in the yeah. end. You just know that you're going to make this film if yeah. you get this certain amount of money. And then as far as distribution and things like that go, you haven't pre-sold anything generally. Yeah, I think that's right. I think... You know, young filmmakers are just trying to get their movies made, and mm -hmm. I think they, most young filmmakers that you meet, they're not the kind of people to think that their film's not going to be the one that's going to get distribution. Otherwise, they wouldn't be slaving away the way they do to try to make the films that they've, you know, that they make. But um, there are enough stories now where people, you know, hear these great stories, people going to Sundance and selling their films for a lot of money and doing really well, and it. You know, so I think everyone has faith. The money's at risk. You know, mm -hmm. the people who make the films and invent, you know, finance the films are as certainly at risk because uh, there are a lot of films that get made for a certain amount of money that don't um, get theatrical distribution. But there are all kinds of alternative forms of distribution. Maybe right. you get a film on HBO or Showtime, so it doesn't. You don't have that wonderful prestige of having a film released in a theater, but you know the investor gets some money back because the films have some video value, have some value, some foreign sales. If you've made the film with any kind of a name, maybe you can get some foreign sales, depending on the genre. So a film will have some value. The question is, if you've made it for too much, given the names involved, maybe you're not going to be able to sell it for as much as what you made it for. So how, I mean, I know that sometimes um, distribution companies have this sort of formula if you have X actor in this genre, yeah. da, da, da. But how does your average Joe know what the talent that they see as the best person for their film is worth in the marketplace? That's, a, that's just a great question. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, the companies... Um, Many of the companies that one might be making a deal with put aside the private equity situation. They clearly have, um, they project based on the value of a name, and they have their models, and they 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 sell films every year, lots and lots of films every year, and they they get a sense of who has value to the foreign buyers because of they're in the marketplace going to 
Cannes and going to Toronto and going to all the different film markets and so forth. So they develop a sense of what they think someone is worth. That may be out of step with what we in America often think because we're reading all the magazines and watching the news and reading variety and talking to the agents and there's a buzz about people that people in other countries don't have any idea who these people are. Maybe they're big names in TV and haven't penetrated the foreign markets. So there's always that discrepancy between choosing someone who we all know is a great actor and is very exciting to some of us but maybe doesn't justify the value for and so uh, that's a challenge I think particularly for the people who invest in who create put private equity into a film with no distribution because they don't have a department that can tell them that these names really um, make a lot of sense. Sometimes a foreign sales agent will be involved in the making of a film. Um, yeah, I was and just so, say they so they know. would be able to give you some value if you were a person who was investing um, uh, money into a film. You'd probably want to have a relationship or bring engage a foreign sales agent to tell you whether this name really is going to give you basically downside protection or. Um, Let's say you're making a film for $3 million, and you go and you say to a foreign sales agent, well, I've got such and such actor and such and such actor. What do you think you can sell the picture for with those numbers? And they'll give you, they'll give you a range, and it might be you know, a million to two million or three million. You, you never really know what it's going to be. It depends on the actor. So uh, how much risk the investor is going to take? Because let's say, for example, they say, well, the na names you've got, We'll, we can probably sell this picture for two million bucks. And that two million, ducks, bucks, two million dollars is still going to have to bear the foreign sales agent's fee. So maybe at the end mm -hmm. of the day, after the foreign sales agent's fee and their expenses, it's a million seven. So then the, foreign, the, the investor has to say, well, then I'm risking a million three against the domestic rights. I have to go to Sundance, let's say, and, and know that I have to sell the picture for at least a million three to, to cover my costs on the picture. So. These are all risk projections that people take. Now, when, when you were doing um, Reservoir Dogs, you did create an entity, however. It mm -hmm. wasn't an LLC, but what kind of entity was it? That was just a California corporation. Just a corporation. Yeah. C Corp or S Corp? I Gosh, don't I don't remember what, what it was back then. You're talking about 17 years Is, ago. I'm just wondering. I just look at that model mm -hmm. and say, okay, you've pre-sold to video, and mm -hmm. then if you happen to get the theatrical, that's a really great yeah. thing. Why is that not possible now to do it that way? Or do people generally do, I know people do do that where they're making something straight to video, but. Um, That's another great I question. Know. I think it's because the business has changed, you know. Um, companies, uh, well, the biggest, the biggest change in the business over the last 10, 15 years has been the cost of not only making pictures, but the cost of releasing pictures. Um, and so, it's really kind of limited the ability of smaller companies to be successful in the business. You can make a movie for two, three million dollars, it's almost irrelevant because to really open a picture you have to spend ten to twenty million dollars. So you're saying so, that probably the advertising costs and, and to get yourself known in I this think world. Prints also, right? Prints are very expensive. So oh, the dis prints. the cost of releasing a picture has become kind of prohibitively expensive for a lot of smaller companies to thrive. So what that means is it's, it's, it's a company that's become dominated by the studios that have either bought 
the case of Disney buying Miramax, or created in the case of Fox creating Fox Searchlight, specialty divisions. These specialty divisions are part of these big corporations. They're not really interested in making three or four hundred thousand dollars on a movie. These are companies that are trying to make, you know, millions of dollars off of independent films, and they're doing it. I mean, that's one of the things you've seen at Sundance has been fascinating in the last year or two. You're seeing sales prices for pictures that are off the charts from what we used to get six, seven years ago. I mean, back in the day, in the late 90s even, you a million dollar sale, two million dollar sale, these were, these were good numbers to get, but those numbers have been supplanted by averages in the four to five million dollar range in the last couple of years because the studios are letting the marketplace kind of this private money come in, make these films, and they're picking and choosing the ones that are really good and not taking the risk of making it themselves. If they made it themselves, it probably cost a lot more than four or five million dollars because the talent would all ask to get more money and so forth and so on. So they're stepping back, not taking as much risk, picking some good titles, buying them for a lot of money. And when you're spending, you know, fifteen to twenty million dollars to release a picture, does it really matter whether you spend two and a half or five to buy it? So mm -hmm. there are these great premiums that are being uh, paid out there for uh, films that are good, that are commercial, that can be released. So uh, the marketplace has changed dramatically in ten years. It's really a completely completely different place. So does the attorney then, I mean, I know uh, people like John Sloss and, and uh, John Pearson before, but not anymore, mm -hmm. used to sort of handhold the producer, and they'd have these relationships with the, the festivals and the distributors that would sort of give you a leg up, you know? I mean, it was kind of like yeah, a no, favoritism yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Is that what you do also? Me personally, in my yeah, practice, I'm I'm not as active in that area as uh, certainly John Sloss, who's uh, you know he's created a company called Synetic, and, and and they do a very good job. Um, uh, Cassie and Elwes, William Morris, um, uh, the guys over at UTA. Howard is that Howard Fine? No. No, um, Richard Klubeck. Um, so each agency's found that there's money to be made. I mean, certainly, again, coming back to Sundance last year, just in January of yeah. 07, there were no sales, I think, Friday, Saturday, maybe even beginning on Sunday. And within about a 48-hour period, I think there were about $40 million of sales. You know, that's just unheard of. And John, certainly, Sloss was, you know, at the head of that, Cassie and Elwes, I think that they're two of the leaders in that area, and there are others. I've sold films at Sundance, and I think it's a fun thing to do. And the lawyers, just coming back to the role of a lawyer, in, in selling films, lawyers have a, a very central place in that, uh, in that situation. Um, so do you go down, let's say I direct a, a movie that gets into Sundance and I produce it, I bring you down with me? Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. what happens? It's, 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 it's even more involved than that. I think the lawyers who... Uh, double as producers reps are calling the uh, various distributors making sure that they're in the screenings um, you know marketing the film a little bit agenting the film a little bit trying to promote interest in the film to get uh, as many people there at that first screening as possible to, you know drive buzz maybe you've hired a publicist to help do that as well how do those um, no negotiations go down I mean like how do you like well, let's say you're at Sundance you, and you're negotiating uh, a sale, how does that happen? Well, that's easy. I mean, yeah. if you have a film that's hot, it's easy. It's, 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 it's a real big challenge, and it's very, you know, there's a lot of tension and a mm -hmm. lot of excitement in the air, but it's, it's, it's you know, it's great when you have multiple buyers because it's, it's, you know you're going to 
you know, break some people's hearts and you're going to make one person very happy, but, you know, knowing what the right price for the film is, sensing, sensing the heat in the room, so to speak. Does that happen um, over the phone or how does no, it happen? No, no, it's, you have all the buyers, you have people? all the buyers in the screening, they're watching the film, the film ends, and uh, no. when you have a hot situation, um, you, basically the buyers are huddling outside the screening and, you know, kind of either pretending not to be as interested as they really are, but asking and inquiring where are you going to be later, selling phone numbers are ex- being exchanged. Um, there's a lot of, it, when you have a good situation, it's really a lot of fun and it's it, it plays out in a way that you can see how to do it. But mm-hmm. the hard situation is when you have a film that's not getting any interest uh-huh. and you're, 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 you're maybe one person's kind of talking to you and and that you're you're just dying to get the other call so that you can get two people to compete against each other, and, um, and that, that, it, that's hard. That's yeah, that's yeah. very hard trying to manage the 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 filmmaker's expectations. Obviously, it's disappointing. Um, but it's so. not dead, right? Then you come back and you can sell it some other way. Well, that's that's true, but it, that's really the premier opportunity. Is if you're at a at a film festival, the initial exhibition of the film. Um, you you, you want to you know if you have one buyer you, you know they kind of can sense if um, no one else is interested and maybe they'll pick it up for a very good price. I think you know I think the buyers talk to each other on some level. There's there's a little bit of that, um, especially in a situation that's not clear cut. And um, but when there's a hot film, it's the best thing in the world. You you the lawyer basically and maybe you know lawyers and agents work together in this area too. You you have all the people kind of bidding. You're 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 kind of scheduling meetings with the filmmaker and staggering them so the filmmaker can meet all the interested buyers. You're at a condo presumably somewhere. You're 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 coming up with a number for your ask, which is hopefully outrageous to everybody, but they're still talking to you, and and you're just driving people bananas. And so, uh, and then you know you're in that room, and then you generally kind of tend to filter out between maybe it goes down to two people and then you lock into one person and then maybe there's a requirement that you negotiate exclusively. I will say as far as a lawyer is concerned, one reason why it's important to have a lawyer in this process and, and um, not just a producer's representative who's not an agent is that uh, there is there are legal situations that are occurring in all these multiple offers. These are you know, first-year contract law. These are offers, and there's a question of acceptance. There's also uh, quite often a request that an offer be made in the context that it's being done in an exclusive negotiation. A lot of distributors want to say, look, I'm going to make this offer to you if we're in exclusive negotiation, because they don't want you to obviously take that offer and go to the next person. That's exactly what you want to do. Mm. But but sometimes, you know, there are relationships here, and sometimes... Um, you need to be able to give a person exclusive negotiation to get the great price. But again, that is a legal offer and a, you know, potentially legal acceptance. There is the question of an exclusive negotiation. That is something that is a legal representation or a, a, an agreement to, to negotiate in a certain way. And uh, the lawyer has to keep track of what's, what's going on because sometimes, and you know, it's happened before, there have been films that have Sold, and someone's claimed that uh, you know you already sold that picture to me, or you claimed we were in exclusive negotiations. So, you know that's a high class, great problem to have because it means you've got more than one person who's dying to buy the film. But it's really important that uh, 
a lawyer keep track of all And that. the reps aren't lawyers? Aren't the reps lawyers? Often. I mean, but, but the all. agents, many of the agents who represent films are not lawyers. Are not, yeah. right. Mm. Were you, am I correct, there's a, a, an anecdote that occurred that involved a restaurant, yeah, Harvey there, Weinstein. Yeah. Okay, tell the story. <laughs> it, was, it got blown out of proportion, but, um, and I always viewed the story very differently, but um, I was just a, you know, a person at a dinner. I wasn't involved with the film, but the film was Shine, um, which had one of those magical screenings. I mean, that was, um, that was a film made in Australia uh, with an Oscar-winning performance. Uh, Jeffrey Rush ended up winning the best actor for that performance. And, it, you know, everyone who saw the film that morning, um, uh, there was a morning screening with all the distributors, knew that it was just a fantastic movie. And this is the kind of film where the people who were selling it, uh, you know, knew they had something very special on their hands. And um, and this was the heyday, really, of, of Harvey Weinstein and Miramax. And, um, you know, and it was a film he felt he had to have. And, um, you know, it's funny, I forget what the film sold for, but I think it maybe sold for $2 million. And I don't know if that was a worldwide deal, but just an example of the change in prices, that's a film that would have sold for a lot more these days because it's a spectacularly good film. And... Um, in any event, the person who uh, sold the film decided to sell it to New Line um, instead of Miramax. And uh, Tony Safford, who's now at Fox, uh, then was at Miramax, um, <coughs> thought that uh, he had been promised, I think, I don't remember all the details, but I think he had been, he'd been, felt he had been promised an exclusive negotiation, what, this issue I was just talking mm-hmm. about. And, um, <coughs> you know, claimed that, that they had... Uh, bought the film and uh, my partner at the time and I went to have dinner coincidentally that night with one of my partner's clients and <coughs> the person who sold the film and uh, we were sitting there at dinner and, and uh, Tony Safford came up and looked pretty scared because he had just lost this film that he knew Harvey Weinstein wanted and, <coughs> and you know, made some plea and you know the guy said it's too late we sold it to, to fine, fine, uh, fine Line and it was a snowy miserable night in Sundance we were we were in some remote restaurant up in the stair and you know an hour later here comes Harvey Weinstein up at the table battling to get this picture and you know and uh, and you know, basically you know made a scene and 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 you know started to touch somebody and then my partner said don't you touch her and don't you da, 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 and, you know, it, it was blown out of proportion, but it was a scene. And I always viewed it, frankly, as, you know, this is the passion of Harvey Weinstein. You know, to me, what other head of a company like him would be chasing down this film, you know, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a snowstorm? You know, I mean, to me, yeah, he was he was trying to bully his way into the film. and um, But, you know, the passion was great and he ended up sending an apology note later no one ever talks about that and but it became part of this Sundance lore that he kind he of beat the crap beat, beat out the, of yeah, it, was baloney, <laughs> it was baloney but um but the truth is that he uh, ended up getting I think half that film because they uh, he ended up making a big enough stink and a you know made a challenge and I think that they worked out some arrangement where he ended up getting some of foreign or something I think but I don't wow know. Yeah. yeah but that's what happens that's crazy. Okay, one last question. Mm-hmm. So let's say that somebody's making an independent film. There used to be a time where they would say, okay, if you make it for less than $2 million, 
you're covered with cable and right. video and da da da, and then you hear, well, you just need to keep it under five because if you go over five, then you kick into gear all these other sort of union rate, uh, mm -hmm. the, the rates jump up. Um, what, what do you think is the most fiscally responsible budget to make an independent, uh, a low budget independent film? You know, I, I don't think there is a number. Um, I think that it used to be like a million and a half dollars. Um, I think, again, the releasing cost issue uh, makes those distinctions moot. Um, I think uh, one of the problems, I think one of the challenges if you're an independent filmmaker now uh, is what we were talking about earlier, is that the, the marketplace has become dominated by uh, the studios in the form of their specialty divisions, which means that uh, for them to be really interested in a film, they have to spend at least ten to twenty million dollars to release it. So if the film is made for two and a half or five, it doesn't really matter. For a studio, they um, they're looking at a fifteen to twenty million dollar expenditure, and so that requires uh, certain kinds of names, um, or just getting lucky making a great film that's so good. You know, after the fact, but that's not a real business plan. To right. like, I'm gonna only make films that are fantastic. Right? So, <laughs> so, um, uh, so I don't know. I, I think, you know, you can. I think, to answer your question, if you had to, if I had to pick a number, I'd say three. But I, I don't know why. That's I don't. What I, I, kind I, of I don't. I, it's just kind of a rough guesstimate. So it, let's say a filmmaker needs a lawyer. How do you suggest that they go about finding one, and what's the proper procedure for them? Um, most lawyers, I think, you know, take referrals from agents. Um, so uh, basically, the material is going to for a person who's a, maybe a writer who's never directed a, a film before and doesn't have a writing career. Um, you're talking about a first, true first-timer, I think, you know, trying to get uh, an agent or producer to believe in them that has relationships, just like you want a producer maybe to get to actors or something like that. Uh, you know, there's certain lawyers that, you know, based on their relationship with people, their, their sense of someone's taste, that um, they'll get a recommendation. So if an agent calls me and says, I got a really good filmmaker, you know, the agent's someone I do business with, I'll trust that person's judgment. Um, so I think it's uh, a referral process. Um, you know, at the same time, I think a, a filmmaker doesn't necessarily have to um, have the lawyer who does the production work, doesn't necessarily have to be their lawyer for life, depending on what their ambition or their goals are. I think um, there are a lot of really talented, good lawyers who um, uh, handle production work uh, in town, and so uh, that's kind of the most important thing is getting that first film made, and then, um, uh, and then maybe at the festival, you know, they'll meet. You know, lots of lawyers go to these festivals to find new people. We're all, all people in my industry, you know, entertainment law business are looking for, you know, the next Quentin Tarantino or the next uh, new talent because uh, Hollywood's that way. You know, there's it's always trying to uh, refresh itself with new talent. So everyone's looking for the new great person. Um, but so getting the movie made is the, the most essential first thing, and and that you know requires uh, someone to handle all the production work and so forth. I but you know you, you you meet people all the time through referrals, and 
you take risks based on your judgment of a person, or maybe you read the script. Um, you know, we're lawyers, we're not, we don't make our business off of our creative taste all the time, but we like to, you know, read stuff and, and meet clients and get a sense of whether they have what it takes. And so there's, there are all kinds of different ways, but sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's hard to find the right person. So. Okay, well, this has been really great and really informative. Very. very um, I, we, at the end of the show, we like to do this thing called Film Bites, where we um, each say something about, uh, it's like, I never can really put this in a nutshell, but it's basically advice to filmmakers out there and people that are making their first film. Something that they might not know that uh, could be an, uh, an obstacle or a pitfall that, that, that they'll know about because we told them. Um, I'm just going to say, for my Film Bite, that um, it's always a good idea to get out to the film festivals, get out to any kind of parties, just to meet people because when you go to make a film you're gonna have to put together this team that doesn't just include actors and uh, you know other filmmakers, maybe people that you went to school with, but it also includes you know attorneys, uh, distribution people, um, and lots of other people that are gonna make your film uh, not only a great film, but a film that is seen by people and that is, uh, you know, sold for a good price. So get out there and talk to people. Mine? Yeah. Uh, don't sign anything. <laughs> <That'd be mine. laughs> Do not sign anything, and I and I, I uh, or try your best not to sign anything until the last possible moment. I think um, that would be the biggest risk. Is that. Uh, you make a deal with your friend or someone you've kind of gotten to know at one of these parties <laughs> and and uh, and things don't work out but you sign something that creates an obligation that's not limited and and then later on when you find the person who can really get your movie made who can really do things for you this person comes out of the woodwork I'm not saying that that happens a lot, oh, it's but, happened to but, me. but it happens. But it happens. It happens. It sucks too. What yeah. do you do about that? Nothing. You, 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 you have to, you know, it, it, unfortunately in the American uh, legal system, a person with a piece of paper can do a lot, especially in a film, because if you want to just talk about this for a second, that letter, that demand letter, that's that letter that says, hey, he signed something with me and I have a position, that becomes what's called a cloud on your chain of title. And then that means that uh, you have an insurance problem um, and that you have a claim that can't be insured. And then they have a lot of leverage. A person with a piece of paper has a lot of leverage, more leverage than they should. And, uh, and then you have a young filmmaker who's dying to make their movie and everybody, you know, tends to overpay in those situations so you know be careful about signing a piece of paper try to get a favor from a lawyer that maybe you know to look at the piece of paper or try your best not to sign it you know that's really the oh, that's, that's my that's my film bite I like that film bite <laughs> oh, that's, that's a, a tragic one. film bite <laughs> I'm sorry I was gonna <laughs> stew in that one for a while disappearing ink yeah yeah but what if that, that thing um, doesn't have any time limitation on That's it? That's the problem, yeah. Isn't that illegal? I mean, how can that... Not, well, it, yes, technically an option that has, for example, an option that has no um, time limit on it could be void, but uh, that requires you know, a lawsuit, and no one wants to go... It, you know, there's no court that you can go to and say, could you just clear this matter up in two seconds for us, you know? And and um, 
and lawyers in that area, you know, are very, very expensive. Um, so um, it, it's there's no easy way out of those situations when something's signed. Um, I mean, there are ways to get around certain things, but you know, typically what's often required is that a producer will ask a filmmaker to sign what's called an attachment agreement. So just make sure that the attachment agreement is limited in time. Um, there are other nuances to those things that create all kinds of problems too. Um, a person will often say, uh, yes, I'm attached for six months to your project, but if you go make a deal you know, within a year after that with any of the companies we approached, then I'm reattached. But of course, they're going to send the thing out to everybody. So the main thing is, you know, maybe that producer didn't help the filmmaker get the actor that triggered all the interest. So it wasn't really so much submitting the screenplay to everybody, it was getting the actor. But now this person's reattached because you've gone to Miramax. And of course, everybody went to Miramax before. So that's, you know, it's, it, that's, that's the tricky part. What would you um, recommend... If somebody had a you know a document that they were going to make like an agreement with another writer or um, you know a, an option agreement mm-hmm. like you're talking about, they don't have a lawyer and this is something in a really early stage. Um, how do you go about just finding somebody to look look over a document like that? Could they come to a law firm like this and pay the hourly w- rate, or do you have to take them on as a client? No, yeah, that's not possible at this mm-hmm. this kind of firm, but it may be possible. There, are, you know, there are a lot of entertainment lawyers out there. Who, who are trying to, to you know um, make it just mm-hmm. like just like the filmmakers? So everyone's willing to you know invest their time into someone they believe in. So uh, that's you know it's Sounds just like, like everything else in the networking of of the business. I wish there frankly was some kind of handbook for independent filmmakers that had this kind of stuff in it. I don't, and I suspect there probably are, but. The, the 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 truth is that each situation is so unique, and it, there's, you can't create a form for everything. You know, some people say, so you just review contracts as an entertainment lawyer, and of course that's an essential part of what we do. But the truth is that it, there's so much judgment that goes into what structure to use, and um, and every deal is different, and every person has their own little point that they have to create, and. And our job is to think through the consequences of all those different points that come up. And it just, I don't think, even if you had a handbook, it would, um, it, it would you know, handle all the different permutations of things that happen. But it would still be nice to, for someone to say, okay, here's the kind of thing. If, if, if you want to do this generically, you know, this is what you should do. And don't mess with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and probably would save a lot of anguish for people. But... Well, one thing that I I know is that uh, Film Independent, if you're a member of Film Independent, they do have um, affiliated with them certain attorneys, and you can schedule a meeting and go Mm -hmm. in, and they'll give you some sort of, some advice sort of off the record, and then if you choose, if you have the money to pay them, you can Mm -hmm. uh, follow up with them and get get some Mm -hmm. contracts done. Yeah, that's good. All right, Carlos, this has been really great. Um, I'm hoping that you're going to write this book because I think it's a really (laughs) important book to write. Um, And um, we thank everybody for listening to the show. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. That was really, really helpful. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Ciao.